Awesome. Um, and yeah, so we are uh, halfway through chapter 4. We are about to, today we're going to be covering Ephesians 4 verse 17 all the way to Ephesians 5 verse 14. Um, and um, I, I was listening to a preacher a while ago and he does uh, this kind of teaching. He goes through the Word of God and he really kind of uh, pulls it apart. And I love that he starts every message like this. He says, um, let's get ready to work. <laughs> he says, we are going to work this morning. And he talks about it that way because uh, the Word of God actually needs to be unpacked. And there's a lot of stuff that happens in the Word of God. And I found that specifically uh, for this morning that um, there is actually a lot of stuff for us to talk through. Um, and so I want to just pray uh, before we dive into it because I really hope that you're going to catch um, something that you can um, really internalize uh, for yourself this morning. God, I pray that um, this morning that your spirit is here, that you are illuminating the truth for us, that you are speaking deeply to us. I pray that, God, that you will show us things that we can change, uh, our mindsets and attitudes that might be um, that, that, that might need a, a bit of adjustment, and I pray for the courage to step out into this, and I pray this in your name. Amen. Um, I was uh, speaking to a pastor, uh, 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 actually a, a retired pastor, uh, this week, and he was saying that one of his perspectives is that in this generation, uh, in this world, we have become really safe. We have become really um, worried about safety. And, you know, COVID has probably really rammed that up to a whole nother level. You know, for your safety, we are shutting down the borders. For your safety, you need all these vaccinations. For your safety, uh, you can't go out. For your safety, and for your safety, for your safety, for your safety. Safety first, put on your mask. When you're sick, put on your mask. We've not done any of these things ever before in any of our lifetimes, I don't believe. And then suddenly, uh, because of this new strain of flu, suddenly we are all... Uh, concern about safety, and, and he, uh, this pastor was saying, uh, maybe media and technology has made this a, a whole uh, another thing, and it's gone to a whole other level, uh, but he was just saying um, briefly, he's like, maybe we need to teach people um, to take risks. We hear so much about, about safety that um, perhaps our whole mindset is about, is this safe? And as I was reading Ephesians and I was thinking about that, I was like, wow, you know, uh, a perspective came to me and he said, uh, what I felt Holy Spirit speak to me is that having relationships are risky. Having um, connections with other people is inherently risky. And I want you to hold that in mind as we talk about some of the things that Paul brings up uh, in this passage that we are covering today. The idea of relationships and what we need to do to have these relationships work. And um, think about it, like, how are you reacting to it? Are you like, ooh, I don't know about that. I don't, oh, I don't like that. Is, that. is that because there are certain perspectives of safety, um, maybe defensiveness even, uh, as you're reading this? And um, let's see where it goes. So we start in Ephesians 4, verse 17, and it says this, So I tell you this, and insist on it in the Lord. The phrase, I insist on it in the Lord, um, in English, I'm reading from the NIV version, does not do this phrase justice. You know, when you think, I insist on it, what do you think of? For me, I think about going to, uh, uh, having a meal with a friend, and, uh, and my friend says, I'm going to pay for this. I was like, no, 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 I'll pay. And there's like, no, I insist on it. You know, does that ring true? You know, that phrase, that's where it comes up, right? I insist on it, I'll pay for this. Um, 
in the Greek, what Paul is actually saying is, the Lord has called me to the witness stand to say this. The Lord has called me to the witness stand to say this. So I tell you this, and this is not just me saying this, God has actually called me to the witness stand. He's saying, I've given you a revelation, and now you need to testify about how this life should be like. This is not just Paul saying, please try this. This is Paul saying, God demands this. Okay, so that's really strong language here. And as we talk about the things in Ephesians 4, 5, and 6, we're going to have a lot of things that sound like checklists, that sound like behaviors that we need to do. Uh, and it can sound like it's really works-based kind of Christianity. Um, but what we need to remember is that uh, Paul has spent the first half of the book talking about what God has already done God insists on these things. God tells us about these things because we have been brought into a new humanity. We have been created in Christ as a new humanity. So God's not just saying this, do this so that, you, uh, so that I will like you. No, God's saying, I've already brought you into family and this is how family works. Okay, so that's the context. Um, and check yourself. If there is this sense of like, oh man, so many things to do. It's like, hang on. No, no, no. Remember the perspective. Paul's already spent half of this book talking about God's love, God's care, God's grace upon us and what He has done. All right, so he says, So I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do. Quick note here, um, the whole idea of do not do as the Gentiles do. Um, this is not, I don't believe that Paul's talking about the Gentile ethnicity. Paul's already spoken about Jews and Gentiles a little bit early in the letter, and he used this Jewish-Gentile um, uh, uh, dichotomy, if you will, uh, by saying that the Jews are the ones that had the covenants and had the intimacy with God. The Gentiles did not have the covenants and did not have intimacy with God. And so in the context of that, then Paul is saying, do not live as those who do not have a relationship with God do, okay? And then he goes on to say, in the futility of their thinking, they are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. So Paul actually stacks four statements here. Um, I do have a PowerPoint with that. So there's a four statements, the four stack phrases. And I'm, uh, on the screen, I'm using a slightly different translation. Um, and it says that these Gentiles, in the futil uh, they, they have this uh, futility of mind. They are darkened in understanding. They are estranged from the life of God through ignorance because of the hardening of their hearts. Now, I want to unpack this because when I slowly took the time to work through these four phrases, certain things really jumped out at me. So Paul says that the people who do not have a covenant with God, uh, do not live in covenant relationship with God, uh, they have this futility of mind. Futility of mind. What does futility of mind refer to? It, it means that the way that they think and judge, the mind is the, is the ability to think and judge, is our ability to perceive, um, uh, to think, uh, to judge things. It says that there is this futility. It is devoid of truth and appropriateness. 
And that's what this phrase means. So Paul's saying, if you do not have this covenantal relationship with God, you have uh, no ability or you have this futile ability to think and to judge. And he says that happens because um, they are darkened in their mind or, or darkened in their understanding. And the word understanding in Greek um, is, is two words put together. It is by mind. So by mind put together is understanding, and it kind of makes sense. But so what I'm trying to put forward here is that Paul's saying that they are futile of mind, and then he says they are, again, darkened in their mind's ability to understand. So um, this is a, a pretty strong theme here, uh, that, 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 that the people living outside of the covenant with God, their, their ability to think and understand is really quite poor. Does that come across strongly to you? Because I was like, wow, uh, to be darkened is to be deprived of light, is to uh, be covering with darkness, is to um, uh, take away light, is, is, is to walk away from light. And so what Paul is saying is that the people who do not have a covenant with God, their thinking is deprived of light and it becomes futile. It becomes, your thinking is then inappropriate. Your thinking is then poor. Your thinking is empty. Your thinking doesn't go anywhere. That's what Paul is trying to describe here. And then he goes on to say that that happened because they are estranged from the life of God through ignorance. And here you have the word ignorance. Again, it's this sense of you do not understand. You, 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 uh, you, you lack knowledge. I kind of found this quite challenging because I was like, wow, Paul actually is saying that people, I'm going to put this extremely bluntly, Paul's saying people who are Gentiles are dumb. He said this three times. They do not know how to think. And he says that they're estranged from the life of God. Now, this one was really interesting. Um, to be estranged is to be a passive non-participant. Passive, not active, non-participant. And so what Paul is saying here is that Gentiles live outside of the covenant of God because they have passively become non-participants. I want you to think about that. Someone says that change for most of us as humans are like leaves dropping off a tree. One by one, they drop. You do not notice that the tree is losing its leaves until it's lost most of its leaves. How did that tree get to that place of not having leaves? One leaf at a time. And so this, Paul's saying that these people have chosen passive non-participation. It's almost as if they're expecting God to propel them into this life that He has for them, uh, um, but, but they have chosen just to stand there. It's like God is uh, calling us to line up and say, who would like to step into life? Please step forward. And people actively choose participation, but by standing where they stand, you are choosing passive non-participation. 
And that is why for us as a church, one of our, uh, well, our mission, our vision is to inspire people to live because we need to understand that the life of Christ is not something that will just come over you and pull you into something that's completely different. It actually demands that we take an active participatory a step, a choice to live in the ways of God. And the, the option here is that if you do not choose to do that, uh, you become darkened in your mind and you become futile in your, uh, in your thinking. That's what Paul is describing here. And he says why people um, uh, uh, passively non-participate in the life of God is because they lack knowledge. It's because they do not perceive what life God has for them. This was something that was very true for me uh, as I was thinking about our vision a few years ago. I was like, do I actually know what the life of Christ looks like? If I were to quiz you right now, what does God say the life He offers looks like? What would you say the life that God has for you is meant to be like? I'm not asking you what you do with your life. I'm asking you what Christ is trying to bring to you, is asking you to participate in. Because if you cannot answer that question, it is possible, I'm not saying that that's what you have done, but it is possible that you have been a passive non-participant in the life of Christ. And I believe that this is not just an easy black and white kind of a statement. I think that there are some areas of our life that we participate in, but then there's also other areas of our life that we have been passive non-participants in. That is absolutely true of myself. There are some areas of my life that I think are very active in terms of kingdom culture, in terms of what God wants for me. But then there are other areas of my life that I'm, I'm kind of still having my eyes open to and, and, and wanting to then step further into it when I realize, when my ignorance has been uh, uh, uncovered so to speak. And so there are these three statements, and then it comes down to a because statement, and it's because of the hardening of their hearts. Now, this sounds like, this sounds like it's someone else doing the work of the hardening, right? No. The hardening of the heart is simply uh, uh, that the person has become uh, covered with calluses. That's the picture of a hardened heart. How do you get calluses? you keep rubbing up against it, right? And so this person has been in many situations where their hearts have been in friction and therefore they become more and more callous. So is the activities that you choose, is the relationships that you have, it's the uh, uh, um, lifestyle that you're living that can cause this hardening of your heart. And so Paul is trying to describe this um, Gentile way of living, this non-covenantal way of living. Now, I want you to also be really careful here because I find myself, when I was reading this, I was like, oh, is that me? Is that describing me? Uh, uh, do I have darkened understanding? Do I have, uh, you know, this estrangement, this non-participation in the things of God? And I was like, I was picking up things about myself and I was like, oh, does that mean I'm a Gentile? No, no, no. This is not what Paul is saying. Paul has said that I am teaching you these things that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do. And then he goes on to describe how the Gentiles live because you already have this new life. 
And this is a theme that's going to come up lots in the next few passages about the fact that God is not saying that you are outside the covenant. You are simply living as though you're outside the covenant. Okay? And so take a deep breath. For I think most of you here, I know you reasonably well, not super well, but some of you not super well, but I understand that all of you are are desiring to be in this covenant cold little fridge that we've got this morning, uh, to hear about the Word of God and to worship together, which probably means that you do not have uh, a Gentile, non-covenantal relationship with God. But, but you can have this covenantal relationship with God and still be living like that, okay? And so Paul's saying, you might not be experiencing the fullness of what God has in His covenantal relationship with you because of these things. So don't live like that anymore. And then so he goes on and he explains, um, verse 19, having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over the sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity and they are full of greed. So Paul's making a word play here. They've already hardened their heart and so they have lost their sensitivity. They have lost their ability to feel. And because they have lost their ability to feel, because of their callous hearts, they then try to find greater feeling. That's what Paul is saying. And that's where there is a warning for us as Christians, as people living in covenantal relationship with God, that if we allow ourselves to live with a hardened heart, if we don't bring this to God, we can lose feeling and we can try to chase feeling. That's what Paul is saying here. Having lost all sensitivity, they try to find feeling. They are given over the sensuality. The picture here that I get is a picture of a drug addict. They start off taking one hit, which gives them all of these pinging senses. And then it's like, wow, I want more of that. But the more you go, the further you go, the more, the higher the dosage that you're going to need in order to have that feeling because you are becoming dulled, but you're still chasing that sensitivity. God's saying real sensitivity is with a soft heart. Real sensitivity, real emotions, real life comes when you do not have a hard heart. Hardness of heart will stop you from being able to feel. And that's what Paul is trying to explain here. And then now, he goes on to then describe the life that we are meant to live. Verse 20, That, however, is not the way of life you learned when you heard about Christ and were taught in Him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. In the Greek, this is actually verse, um, uh, verse 20 and 21 uh, has a really weird uh, grammatical uh, sentence. It actually says, but in such a way, you did not learn the Messiah. You did not learn the Messiah. It's not that you didn't learn about the Messiah or you didn't learn from the Messiah, it's that you didn't learn the Messiah. And in our English version, because you cannot write such stuff, because it's weird, um, we get this sense and, and we get this estrangement or, or there's this divide between Christ and His teachings. And so when Paul is talking about learning, we immediately think about Jesus' teachings. But what Paul is saying is not so much learning about Jesus' teachings, but is actually learning to live with the Messiah, is learning the Messiah. 
if you will, maybe I can use this analogy of like, when you were dating, you were learning about the person that you were wanting to um, get married with one day. You were exploring what each other are like. But what the Bible tells us is that when you get married, um, uh, uh, two become one. And so you might be learning about the person while you are dating or while having friendship with the person, but when you are married, you're actually learning the one. You're learning not about the one, but you're learning the one. <laughs> you're, you're having this intimate relationship and, 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 and you are becoming more like the person because of this close intimacy. And so that, therefore, understand that Paul's talking about covenantal life here. It's about not life doing the things of Christ, but is life with Christ and therefore doing the things that he would do. Make sense? And then so in verse 22, uh, we then have this big passage about a whole bunch of stuff that we are meant and not meant to do. Uh, let me just read this, uh, verse 22 to 32. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by his deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we are all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. And do not give the devil a foothold. Anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, and, but must work doing something useful with, with their own hands so that there may be uh, something to share with those in need. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen." Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. How many people read a checklist here? I know I did. That was my mind. I was like, oh wow, okay, so... Um, I found this really helpful. Uh, put up the next slide if you can, Trev. Um, and we have, uh, not that one, the next one. There should be, there we go. All right, so I found this um, table, and I thought it was really uh, quite a clever way to approach this passage. On the left column, we have a whole bunch of things that Paul was describing as part of the old humanity. And then on the right column, a whole bunch of stuff that is related to the new humanity. And so let me just read through the old humanity. What do you do with the old humanity? You take off your old human. That's actually more closer to the Greek translation. You take off your old human. <laughs> How interesting is that picture? You take off your old human. Uh, uh, Paul's really wanting you to understand that in Christ, you are this completely new human. However, there is still this need for you to take off your old human. I don't think our minds quite grasp and grapple with this, but this is what he's saying. Take off your old human, off your former way of life. That is being ruined by deceptive desires. Take off lying, take off anger, take off stealing, take off rotten speech, take off bitterness, take off anger, take off wrath, take off yelling. <laughs> yelling is kind of a funny one in there, I find. Uh, am I yelling? Am I not supposed to do this? Uh, take off blasphemy. 
That's the old humanity. And then he then has on the right hand side this new humanity put on. You can be created in Christ new, but you still have to put it on. Put on the new human, being renewed in the spirit of your mind that has been created according to God in righteousness and holiness of truth. Speak truth not allowing the sun to set on your anger. Work so you can share with others. Speak words that build others up and give a gift. Kindness, practice kindness, compassion, and forgiveness. And we see these two um, side by side, and, and it's kind of like, okay, cool. You see, Paul is not just trying to say, don't do this. Paul's also saying, do this. And what I was kind of grappling with um, as I was working through this, I started to realize that what I do is that I check on the things that are on the left column a lot more. All right? Anyone like me? No, or just me? Like a few people nodding their heads. We go, oh, okay, so I need to take off my old human. I need to uh, release my former way of life. Uh, okay, yeah, I need, to, I, I need to stop lying, I need to stop anger, I need to stop stealing, I need to stop rotten speech, I need to stop, 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 stop. Um, and we think that by stopping all of those things, we're, we're doing okay. What Paul is saying is, you need to stop these things and you need to start these things. You need to stop these things and you need to practice these things. And God was putting on my heart that sometimes we as Christians are happy to live in neutral humanity, right? I'm not doing the old stuff. I'm not a bad person. No, there is no neutral humanity here. There is all humanity and there is new humanity. And I started to see that um, it's actually the enemy's lie to us that you can live in neutral humanity and that is good enough. You see, it is this deceptive way of living that stops us from understanding and, have, and being darkened in our minds to the fullness of what Christ has for us. And when you look at the things that Paul writes on the right-hand column about the new humanity, I think that they sound a little bit fluffy. Anyone here with me? You know, like I thought that the new humanity would be things like walking through walls. You know, Jesus got to walk through walls. I want to be the new humanity. I want to walk through walls. I want to be able to teleport. Jesus had this ability. When he was resurrected from the dead, he could just appear in different places. I want that to be on a list of the new humanity. Practice teleportation. Anyone here with me? No, no, no. What he's talking about is relating to people. The new humanity is learning how to relate to people and is relating to people in this generous kind of a way that is kind of foreign to our society. It, it, a couple of things that really stood out to me is that you work for the express purpose of being able to share with others. How many of us actually do that? I know that for me, my work, I'm like, okay, I need to save for this. I want to get this. And da, da, da. Oh, yeah, I better be a little bit generous too. And then I have that generous column, but then I've got all of this other column for myself. But, but it seems like the new humanity is more caught up in how generous can I be to others first. 
And then he goes on to say, speak words that build others up and give a gift. Every word that we speak can be a gift. And he's saying the new humanity is caught up with that. And when I looked at that, I was like, you know what? I think I am very good at practicing neutral humanity. I don't know if I'm as good at practicing new humanity. And then God this week was convicting me and saying there's no such thing as neutral humanity. What's neutral humanity? Life without God? Well, that sounds like all humanity to me. And so he started to work in me as though I needed to have, not as though, I, I needed to have a value system checked in my life. And this table helped me to see that. This table was helpful to see, hang on, in this situation, I'm feeling like I want to do these things. So I'm not just not choosing to do those things. I'm actually going to choose to do these things. Does that make sense? I'm not just going to choose not to do things. I'm actually going to take another step and practice these things that are difficult, that are new to me, that can be difficult to me. And I have realized that the more I practice the new humanity, the more I feel the life of God coming into me. New perspective, new hope, new life, new newness. But the more I try to practice neutral humanity, the more I find myself somehow on this slippery slope, very quickly going back into old humanity. I'm not going to not forgive. Oh, oh, oh suddenly I am in unforgiveness. I'm not going to, uh, uh, to uh, I'm not going to be bitter. I'm not going to be bitter. Uh, after a while, I'm like, I am bitter. <laughs> I am bitter. I'm just trying to tell myself that I'm not bitter. You know, I, I, I'm not going to live in those ways, but suddenly it's so easy to just slip back there. And so God's not just saying be neutral. God's saying be new. And then he, um, another thing that was really interesting about that section uh, is that Paul actually quotes from the Old Testament three times. And I want to pull these up because they help us to see why Paul chose some of these behaviors to list in that table. Because there can actually be a whole bunch of other behaviors that you could say is new creation-like. But why these three? The first one uh, is in verse 25 when Paul said, um, speak truth. He said, speak truth, uh, speak truth, uh, each one with his neighbor. It actually comes from Zechariah 8, 16. These are the things you ought to do, speak truth to one another. So Paul was actually quoting Old Testament scripture. In Zechariah, why uh, truth was a key thing or, or what, what Zechariah was trying to do was he was saying, God desires to live with you. God desires intimacy with you. But you Israelites for so long have been walking away from him, setting up a culture that is separate to the kingdom of God and therefore pushing God away. You want God to come back? These are the things you must do. Speak truth to one another. In fact, I would say, go back, look at Zechariah chapter 8. What are some of the behaviors there? Paul might be just using shorthand to say, you know, these are the things you do. Speak truth to one another. Yeah, yeah, what? And all the rest too. But the point of this is that we are not speaking truth to one another just for the sake of speaking truth. We're speaking truth to one another because we desire to have God dwelling with us. I do not choose to withhold truth. When I choose to withhold truth, I am saying I do not need God here with me because God is a spirit of truth. In Him there is no falseness. 
And when we live in any aspect of falseness, we are saying, God, I'm not inviting you into this space. And so therefore, Paul picks up on this theme and he says, speak the truth. And he says this actually clearly, in, 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 as, as well we've read this, speak the truth in love. He doesn't just say speak truth, speak truth in love. God is love, God is truth, and so we need to be speaking God to one another. And that's what he's saying. You want to invite God into your life? Speak truth. All right, the second thing that he references is in verse 26 where he says, in your anger do not sin. He's quoting from Psalm 4 verse 5. If you read the whole of Psalm chapter 4, um, uh, um, it's all about this sense of uh, what anger and, and, and emotions do in a person. It's about how in our emotional, heightened emotional state, we end up plotting and scheming against each other. There is this sense where, uh, 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 sorry, David was writing about his enemies and he, and he was saying in their anger, they are plotting, they are scheming against me. And so really what Paul is trying to write here, I believe, is not just about anger, but is about emotional regulation. In our new humanity, uh, it's not about not having emotion. Remember, it doesn't say, um, do not be angry so that you will not sin. It says, be angry and do not sin. It's talking about emotional control. It, it, it talks about all, I, I believe that there are more emotions than that. But Paul does focus and David does focus on anger because anger is this really interesting emotion. I did a bit of study on anger a while ago and it was brought up uh, for me when I was thinking about this. Uh, but anger is actually uh, classified in two different ways. One of those classifications is as a primary emotion. And is a what a primary emotion is, is that there's a situation that occurs and our first reaction, our first emotion to it, that's the primary emotion, okay? And so anger can be a primary emotion. Uh, um, and I would say that anger is primarily a primary emotion. Uh, <laughs> when we think of anger as a primary emotion, it's best to understand it in the context of when we see something happening to someone else that is unjust, and we want to do something about it, okay? Uh, so when we see Jesus going to the temple, uh, in the New Testament, he goes to the temple, and he sees what is going on. He is angry, and he clears the temple uh, because of this injustice that he was seeing taking place in the temple. That is an example of a primary emotion. However, uh, uh, anger is also a secondary emotion, a secondary emotion is where you have this first emotional reaction to what is taking place, and then you have an emotional reaction to the emotion that you experience. Does that make sense? <laughs> I, I see some shudders because I'm confusing. So let me give you an analogy. Uh, in particular, anger arises out of the primary emotions that we felt because anger is hot, it's focused on the outside, and it gives us courage to do something on the outside. It pushes us outside ourselves. And so anger is uh, a secondary emotion really often to primary emotions that are very uncomfortable to ourselves. So when we feel shame, some of us don't even know we feel shame because we feel anger. Our secondary response is so quick, shame, anger. 
You don't even feel ashamed. You, feel, you don't even feel guilt because it jumps straight to anger. You don't feel uh, disappointment because you go straight to anger. You don't go to any of these emotions that are tough for you on the inside because anger is hot. Anger gives you a sense of agency. Anger gives you a sense of, I can do something about this, but you will only focus on the outside. And so what happens when we are angry is that we begin to think about this injustice that this other person has done rather than dealing with the core needs of the emotions that you first felt. When I'm feeling ashamed, what is the thing that I should do about shame is that I should get connection. I should go connect with the person. I should connect with love. I should connect with... Um, with this sense of uh, uh, belonging. That's what shame does. Shame tells us that we don't belong. Shame tells us that people don't uh, uh, um, uh, have any respect or honor for you. People don't see any value in you. That's what shame tells you. And so we don't like that. How many people will say, oh, I love to feel ashamed? No, no one loves to feel ashamed because shame makes you feel really, really, really terrible about yourself. And so what do we do? We get angry. And then what do we do when we get angry? As Psalm 4 tells us, we plot and we scheme. How do I get this other person back for making me feel ashamed? We don't have those words in our mind. All we're saying is that that, that person's a bad person. They make me feel bad things, so they must be a bad person. That's what anger tells us. Anger is hot. Anger is often irrational. Anger is strong, and it pulls us away. And so what Paul is telling us to do when he quotes this and he says, do not let the sun set in your anger, is not saying that you've got a time limit to your anger. I mean, we are in winter now, right? Some days like today, I don't know if we will see the sun. What does this mean? Do I get to be angry? You know, what if I get angry at 5 o'clock and the sun sets at 5.30? Oh, Sun setting. Can't be angry. No! What it's saying is that it's drawing this picture of when the sun sets, the light sets. Do not let anger fester in darkness. Do not let anger steam. Do not let anger continue its path of destruction in the way that you're thinking, feeling, and acting. He's saying, do not let anger have that room. Bring anger to the light. Learn how to control. We could talk about this all day because this is one of those things that I absolutely am fascinated with. It is something that I have struggled with for a lot of my life. I have this hot anger and I'm having to learn how to control it. It's not easy. But the more I see that my anger is a secondary emotion to what I am really needing on the inside, I can deal with it by saying, anger, you're not helping right now. It's time for the sun to set and for you to dis not disappear, but for you to take a back seat because I need to deal with these things. And so that is something that I have had to learn how to do. And so that's how we be angry, but do not sin. Am I angry? Yes. Was it painful? Yes. Was it uncomfortable? Yes. Do I like it? No. But what do I really need? 
What is it that is deeper than that? We as new humans need a different way to deal with our emotions. Our culture today is a cancel culture, if you want to read that up. It says that if you don't like something, if someone has done something that you see as unjust, you get to cancel them. You get to say, you are no longer a part of my life. You're no longer a part of anything I do. And that is how people deal with their anger. They cancel. We are not. As new, Christ, as new humans allowed to do that. That is not part of this covenantal life that we have in Christ. Cancel culture will cancel your ability to feel. It will cancel your ability to understand other people and live in a way that God has for you. Oh my gosh. All right, the third thing that Paul quotes from... Um, the Old Testament is in verse 30 where he says, do not blaspheme uh, or the Spirit of God, uh, sorry, or do not grieve the Holy Spirit, sorry. And it's quoted from Isaiah 63 verse 10. I'm just going to run through this one really quickly because I, don't, uh, I think it's pretty simple. Paul is not just saying about uh, don't grieve the Holy Spirit for the sake of it. He's saying that the Old Testament is actually a fantastic example of people that have received redemption and have grieved the Holy Spirit, that have received the promise of God and not lived it out, that have received the love and grace of God and rejected it. Every time you read the Old Testament, it's actually a story of humanity. It's a story of how God loves, uh, loves us, redeems us, wants to come to us, but we as human beings have this tendency to reject and to push away. So why is it important that we don't read the Holy Spirit? Because read the Old Testament. That's what happens, all right? You can do that work. I'm not going to do it for you. Ephesians 5, verse 1, as we continue, it says, Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children. Here, such an important verse that we gloss over, or I gloss over. God's not saying all of these things as outsiders, God's saying these things to you because you are already dearly loved children. If you do not understand your status in God, you will not be able to live out your new humanity. If you do not understand the love of God, you will not be able to live out love. If you are unable to understand the grace of God, you are unable to then give grace to other people. It is a simple, simple fact in this regard. So why do we follow God's example? Because we already are dearly loved children and walk in the way of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Jesus has given us a, an, a, an amazing example already and, and, and we can all learn from it, obviously. And then we read on, uh, verse 3, but among you. And here we go. Here's another checklist. This is like the passages of checklists. But anyway, but among you, there must be not even a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed because these are improper for God's holy people. Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. Really interesting. But rather thanksgiving. We're going to come back to that. For of this you can be sure. No immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a person is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. What we read here, um, theologians actually believe that Paul's using this trio three times. Sexual immorality, impurity, and greed. 
sexual immorality, impurity, and greed. In the middle is a little bit harder to see because he says obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking. Uh, that obviously has to do all with the mouth. And where does that come from? Sexual immorality, impurity, and greed. Okay, so that's what theologians have, have uh, arrived at in this passage. Paul uses these three things, and he says, don't do these three things three times. When something is in the Bible repeated three times, it is saying, pay attention to these. These are really important for you not to do. Sexual immorality, impurity, and greed. Why those three things? Why? Because these three things are what leads people to idolatry. These three things elicit uh, desires in you that are not of God. It will lead you to pursue desires that are not of God. That's what this part is all about. If we want to love God, we cannot have these pursuits in our life, sexual immorality, impurity, and greed. And so Paul then gives us one little antidote for these three things. What is it? Thanksgiving. The antidote to sexual immorality, impurity, and greed is thanksgiving. I thought about that, and I was like, that's weird. You know, thank you, God. Nope, nope, those desires are still there. Thank you, God. Nope, still, you know, what was this supposed to do? Well, we're not just saying thank you. Thanksgiving is not just thank you, but it's thank you for something. True thanksgiving understands what is going on. And so when we have these desires that are pulling us away, uh, calling us to pursue something else, thanksgiving helps us to recognize what we do have. And so whenever you sense these three things popping up in your life in some way, shape, or form, what do you do? You begin to thanks, give thanks about what you do have. You give thanks for what God has given to you. What Paul is saying here is that the old humanity would chase these desires because those desires are so strong. The new humanity stops that and recognizes there are things that I do have that when I leave to pursue these things, I will not have any longer. And so you short-circuit the pursuit drive and you look at what God has given you or what God desires to give to you, perhaps, and you stay in that space. All right, so that's what that section is all about. And the final section, verse uh, let, uh, sorry, let's keep reading. Let no one deceive you with empty words for such things well, because of such things, God's wrath comes, along, comes on those who are disobedient. Therefore, do not be partners with them. Now, what's this whole thing about God's wrath and disobedience? We have covered this in an earlier section in Ephesians. Remember, we talked about the children of disobedience and, and the children of wrath. The children of disobedience are those who have chosen membership with the disobedient, and therefore you are now going to receive the consequence that was due to, those, to that particular group, which is God's wrath. God's wrath is not this hot anger uh, uh, that is just uh, willy-nilly, I don't like how you're living, smack. But rather, it is saying that if you live in that way and God gives you clear warnings, that is what disobedience looks like. When you partner with disobedience, what do you get? You get what's coming to them, which is God's wrath. 
Any parent that does not give consequences to actions, it's a terrible parent. And so what God is saying is that, hey, I've already lined up what is disobedience, and therefore do not live in that. You need to live differently if you want to have life. All right? So that's the wrath issue. Uh, Finally, uh, verse 8 to 14, and we're going to finish here. For you were once darkness. Oh, I love this. It's not you were once in darkness. The old humanity is darkness. You do not bring your old humanity because your old humanity is at complete odds with your new humanity. You do not have this hybrid old humanity, new humanity thing. You are brought into new humanity and the old humanity cannot stay because you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light, for the fruit of light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth, and find out what pleases God. The new humanity has this desire to find out, to discover what is pleasing to God. Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. It is shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret, But everything exposed by the light becomes visible, and everything that is illuminated becomes a light. That is why it is said, wake up, sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. I just want to focus uh, um, on a poem in a bit, and, and we'll finish there. I just want to say that in these passages that we've read, Paul's trying to show us in many different ways this old versus new humanity picture. Old humanity, new humanity. Gentiles, Jews, um, light, darkness, those that are pursuing God, those that are not pursuing God. We have these dichotomies. We have what Paul is showing us. That is all this is new. You have been brought into new, but you have to choose to live as new. And so he finishes off that section with this um, um, poem, Wake up, sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. And he says, this is why it's said. Now, um, if you look in your Bible, if you've got one of those Bibles with footnotes, you will notice that it actually isn't a direct quote from anything. (laughs) And it's like, where did that come from? Why is it said? Who said? Who said this, right? Well, Paul seems to have been making a composite of a couple of verses in Isaiah. Isaiah 26 verse 19 and Isaiah 60 verse 1. And the point of those two passages is that Isaiah was prophesying that there is one day going to be resurrection life available in Christ, available in the Messiah. The Messiah will come and resurrection life will be made available to all of us. And so Paul is saying here, resurrection life has come. Resurrection life has come. One theologian kind of wraps up this by saying, in Ephesians, Paul teaches us that the new humanity is a present reality. Reflect on the idea that Paul is saying, act as you really are rather than be somebody different. God is not calling you to be different. God's calling you to act as you are. And that is the drive of this. He's saying, no, 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 all those desires, all those things, they are not you. Living in the old humanity is not 
you. You've got to learn how to live in the new humanity. And some of us will struggle with that because the reality of the, pra- the, the practice of this is like, wow, I'm still really steeped up in all of these things that are from the old humanity. What am I supposed to do with them? Paul's answer to that is practice the new. Practice the new. He isn't saying that you have to... Uh, um, and come to God and ask to be a new creation. He said, you already are a new creation. And um, I read uh, I, um, a friend, uh, I caught up with him this week, and, and, and he was telling me the story. He, he, saw this, uh, he met up with this guy, and this guy said, hey, uh, he's a pastor as well. I said, pastor, you're a pastor. You should know what the Bible stands for, the, the, the letters in the Bible. What does it stand for? And, um, and he said, as in like what? You know, B-I-B-L-E, is that what you... Is there supposed to be some deep meaning behind B-I-B-L-E? And the guy said, yeah, you're a pastor. You are supposed to know that. And my friend was like, uh, well, 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 I don't. And this guy said, well, it's basic instructions before leaving earth. And that's kind of clever, but also kind of stupid, right? Is this just kind of like, hey, hey, hey. Get rid of this earthly life because God's going to whisk you up into some new life and that's where it's all going to be good and well. But while you're on this earth, everything is ridiculously crap. So you just need some basic instructions. Put on your life jacket or put on your rapture suits and get ready because God's going to take you somewhere else and it's going to be... No. And my friend said to this person, I love it, he's such a humble guy, I'll just be like, <laughs> just walk away, go like, I said, no, no, I kind of think that the Bible is more instructions for how we are meant to live. Not how we are meant to live later. How we are meant to live now. And so I hope that you get this. I hope that I've managed to balance of grace and truth this morning. The grace is that God has already given But the truth is that we need to practice living in this new life. And it's not going to be easy. It's not going to be smooth sailing. Sometimes you will wish that the rapture is tomorrow or even right now. But that's not how the Bible describes our life in God. He describes that we are, we've got resurrection life today, now, here, in this moment we have resurrection life. We can get the band up this morning. I want to put out an issue. I want to issue a challenge to us this morning. But I also want to issue a space. I want, I want to create a space this morning because I understand that some of these things are not easy. And perhaps you have this, something has been dropping in your heart over this message. And perhaps over this time that we've been talking through Ephesians that man, I don't know if I get this new life that God has for me. I don't know if I've got the strength, the courage to practice the new humanity. I don't know if I'm there yet. I don't know if I've got it. I don't know if God's graced me for it. I'm struggling so much in it. If that's you this morning, welcome to the club. The church isn't a body of people that have already made it. It's a body of people that got saved out of darkness, brought into light, and are learning what the light looks like. 
Our eyes are still adjusting to the light. Our eyes are still kind of like, oh my gosh, this is so bright. I can't even open my eyes. But the more you practice it, the more you stay in the light, the more it's revealed, the more your eyes are open, the more you receive the light, the more your heart softens, the more you understand what God's perfect and pleasing will is, the more you have life in you. And so I'm going to ask this morning, if you want prayer, if you want someone to stand with you so that you are able to uh, stand and continue to practice living in the light, let's do that. Let's pray. But I want you to also walk away knowing that tomorrow, things are going to come that might pull you away from living in the light. Maybe even this afternoon, maybe even this evening, maybe when the sun sets, there are going to be certain emotions and things that pull and try to uh, 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 get you away from the newness of life. If that's the case, say, God, I want to live as you want me to. And so this morning, can we stand together? If you want to be making this commitment, this fresh commitment, and say, God, I want to live in the light. I want to live with you in the light. Can I just ask that you just put your hand over your chest, a hand over your heart. And as a church, I'm just going to pray. Dear God, I pray that you're the one that searches our heart. You're the one that searches our soul. You're the one that knows where darkness is. You know where we struggle. And I pray to God that you will highlight these things. I pray to God that we will practice living in the light. I pray that we will learn how to leave our old humanity behind and that we will put on the new. I pray that you will help us to practice all aspects of the life that you have given to us. Thank you, God. Amen. We hope you've enjoyed this week's message. Follow us on Instagram at The Live Church or on Facebook at Live Church Perth. That will give you all the up-to-date information about what's happening in the life of our church. Thanks again for listening. God bless.